Say, oh, how I love Jesus. Well, good morning, church. You know, with the weather that we had this morning, I, I thought I might be the only one here today. So thank you for everyone who came out with that freezing mist and, and those cold temperatures. Wasn't the music great today? Had a lot of energy up here today now. I looked around and, and I saw that we, we didn't put our, our pews back up here and I started getting a little nervous that we were going to have a lot more energy up here. And so now, you know, I'm thinking I got some room to kind of run around. But it was good. Thank you for everyone who, who took the time to get ready for today and, and to uh, share their talents and gifts with us. Well, we return to our series through the entire New Testament. And, and if you noticed, uh, we're no longer in Matthew. That kind of happens when you read a little bit every day. Eventually you plug along and you get through with something. Well, between last week and this week, uh, some very important things happened in the gospel. Um, Jesus was arrested, put on trial, beaten, crucified, resurrected, and now we get to start all over again in the Gospel of Mark. You know, this has been a series that, that uh, I hope you've enjoyed, and I hope you stay with us. But one thing you know, if you have been participating, and you've been trying to read a little bit each day, or if you're, you're, you're more like me, where you just spend a day and you catch up, Mark has a much different flavor than Matthew. It, they are both the Gospels of Jesus Christ. The good news come to earth. But, but Mark is different, isn't it? If you noticed on that little bookmark you got last week that we'll be done with this Gospel before the month's over. And we'll be moving on to the next. It's one of the shortest, it's not one of the, it's the shortest Gospel. It's the second in our series. But, but it seems to be missing a few elements. Uh, did y'all read about Christmas in Mark? No, it wasn't there. Did y'all skip a, a genealogy that you didn't have a lot to do with? No, what wasn't in Mark, was it? He kind of gets straight to the point. Basically, he puts John the Baptist on the scene. He proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then Jesus pretty much takes over. Now we're just into chapter 3, and we already see he's at odds with others in his own community you know if you look at the political landscape today newcomers seem to be at odds with the status quo this was Jesus so many years ago that there were establishments the Pharisees the Herodians all these ones the Sadducees you know they're sad you see But there's all these different groups that had found a political niche about the kingdom of Israel and what it meant to be with the Romans on whether you, you, you uh, cozy up to the Romans or you are out to throw them out of your, your nation. But when we read Mark, we get a different sense than we did in Matthew. Matthew was more, I don't know if reflective might not be the right word, but it was about fulfillment. It tied into the long history of the Old Testament. And these things that were written about in the past were coming about in the present. Now these things are kind of in Mark, but that doesn't seem to be the trajectory. 
And as you continue to read this, you'll notice some things kind of seem out of order. Well, they're different. This wasn't a biography, remember. The, the Gospels aren't biographies. They're about the good news. And Mark was writing to a particular audience. And his was more of a straight-line approach from start to finish. We're going to start here where Jesus started, and we're going to end where he ended on the cross. And so that is the direction that it was going. But now who is Mark? He's not listed in the twelve. He actually can go by John Mark. That's my name. I don't go by John. I go by Mark. So maybe we had that in common. I don't know. But he, he hung out with Peter after Jesus' ministry. He was a translator. He even hung out with Paul. So he heard these stories. He heard the sermons preached over and over again. So he knew the story. He wasn't necessarily an eyewitness. But as the disciples, who are now the apostles by this time, were being martyred for the faith, being the witnesses unto death. He began to make an orderly account because persecution was breaking out on those who followed the way, who followed the way of the early Christians. And so he doesn't have necessarily first-hand knowledge, but he is inspired by the Spirit to write. And he writes these events, and he writes them in a way that will call action, will call us to do something, he started where Jesus started in Galilee. And that's the openings of the book. And then we just seem to be following Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And then we're there at Golgotha. Mark is telling this gospel. And you can see it's not from this first person point. Really his only words were right there in the prologue on why he wrote the gospel. But then we see that this is short. Now, if you've got a newer translation, you'll notice at around chapter 16, verse 8, that there's an alternative ending. In the oldest manuscripts, that means the oldest, oldest pieces of papyrus or whatever it was written on that was passed around the early church, it didn't have the ending in Mark. It seemed to have been added later. Now, we kept it because of the tradition that it has with our scripture in the canon. But consider this as you read through this. In Mark's gospel, there are no resurrection appearances if we stop there at verse 8 of 16. What we stop at are people who are afraid. They have lived with Jesus. They have ate with Jesus. They had ministered with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to what Jesus could do. But in the end, they were afraid to even go. And the story just ends there. So I ask you to ponder this as we read. If the story ends there at an empty tomb with the announcement of an angel, and you see all those who have heard and know they were supposed to go, what is your response? Because that's what Mark's gospel does. It calls for a response. He lays out the evidence of Jesus and his ministry and what it meant at Calvary. And he shows that those who should have been in the place of authority to carry on this mission, they mess up over and over again. This gospel does not paint a pretty picture of those disciples back when they ministered with Jesus. Over and over again, they are messing up. Even Peter, on who the 
whole church is founded. Mess up. And so as we read together, there will be a call for action. And as I tried to explain to the children earlier, there's this term that keeps coming up. It's immediately. And immediately this took place. And immediately this took place. Pay attention to that. If you write in your Bible, it's a good practice. Mark it as you read through this gospel. Count how many times it is there. Or other words that mean similar things. And you will see that there is an urgency of this gospel message, of this good news calling for a response. It's calling us to go. But now as we consider today's verses in chapter 3, I want to confess something. And maybe you already know this. Life is not a straight line series of events. It's not necessarily just cause and effect. You know, a lot of times we study, we have the scientific method. If this causes this, this is a reaction. And we think in a very linear fashion. I've been guilty of that all my life. You know, now that I'm knocking on the door of 40, I've come to understand that life is more complicated than you realized when you were young. Give me an amen if you agree with that. Life is, it's complicated. There's things that overlap. We want to say it's just a cause and effect, but there's systems in place. From the culture that we are born in, from our early days, we are taught a certain pattern. And we may not even understand that. It's kind of the way we view the world. You know, we, we can read the newspaper, watch the news, and we view it through, through particular aspects of our being. And we may not even be cautious of it. But this is what we see in the gospel. We see people who are exposed to Jesus still viewing the world as they were preconditioned to. These Pharisees, who were they? They weren't bad people. They're always at odds with Jesus, so we just assume them to be evil. They really weren't. They were kind of your, your blue-collar guys that, that wanted to bring about the kingdom of Israel back to its glory days. There's nothing wrong with that. They wanted to put Israel back on the map. You know how they chose to do it? Well, it wasn't through military conquest. It wasn't through some kind of manipulation of the system. They returned to the scriptures. Is that a bad thing? No, because the scriptures hold the answer to what they were looking for. And in it, they saw how the people of Israel had failed in the past. Through their history, we see how David rise to power. And even David, King David, had his own faults. And the splendor of Solomon and then civil war that followed. Civil war was followed by a conquest of enemy powers. And a dispersion of their people into the world by the Babylonians. And they've traced the lineage of how they got to where they were at. And how the temple was rebuilt. You know what they saw? People failed to honor God. Over and over again, people failed to honor God and live by the statutes that he called them to live by. And as they failed to honor God, and they went about following idols and these different types of avenues, looking for something, God would eventually 
lift his hand of protection off of his people. And he would let the enemies come in and do justice and do harm to a people who should have known better and didn't do what they were called to do. And so these Pharisees saw this. They see it in the history. We can read the history. We can find it today. And we can see how they're right. And so they returned to the Torah. They returned to living a wholesome life, a holy life. And they, they went to the law and they built this system, this religious system based on the law so that they may return their people to God. But they misread. They read the list of do's and don'ts. And they thought that's how it was to honor God. But God wanted a heart drawn to him, not a people who would rigorously follow a certain set of rules. And this is why they didn't like Jesus. Because Jesus did something that they wouldn't. To keep themselves holy, they didn't associate with the rabble. That's the very people Jesus came to see. That he came to the sick and the infirmed, and that he touched them and he healed them. Not only of their diseases, but the hardness of their hearts. And he called them to a kingdom very different than what the Pharisees had sought. But there were others, like the Herodians. King Herod, you heard that name? They were the ones who had reestablished Israel under Roman control. That they were okay with Rome being there because Rome offered security. They had this idea of this Pax Romanus, this Roman peace. And they brought security to the nation because Rome could do what they couldn't do. And they could attack all the people who were against them. So as long as Rome stayed out of their business, they were okay with it. They were the aristocrats. They had power. They had money. But they had compromised to a system that they were against. Because it got, got, gave them the power that they sought. Over and over again in human history, we can see that the greatest temptation that any civilization ever had wasn't money, wasn't sex, it was power. And when somebody could give you power, you took advantage of that. If you could execute power on others, you did. That's what human history tells us over and over again. The worst and the best is an exercise of power. But at how it viewed its use is a difference. And so as we read the gospel and we get to the end of chapter 2, we already have a conflict with the Pharisees over their interpretation of the law on what it meant to be the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1, we begin... And again, another issue on the Sabbath that Jesus is confronting. It says, And again he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And, he watched, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Are to do harm, to save a life, or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. 
how to destroy him. So here's the conflict that we are having. It's about interpreting the law. If you're looking from a very straight line approach, as these Pharisees had, they see that there is a law to, to honor the Sabbath, keep the day holy, rest because your, your father had rested in creation, rest because you were slaves in Egypt. There's different explanations, but Sabbath keeping was a big deal for them. Now, some of us had that same experience when we were children, that on Sundays, you didn't do anything besides go to church. Our communities experienced this. You know, there wasn't even restaurants or grocery stores opened on a Sunday. They were closed. Heaven forbid you could buy alcohol. But times have changed, and those restrictions have relaxed. Maybe that's good, maybe it's not. But the legalism that I saw as a kid has just taken on different forms today. And so when we see Jesus contend over the Sabbath, which actually is a Friday night to Saturday morning, completely different story. We, we did Sunday because that's the Lord's day, and, and that's the day that we worship because that's the day Jesus was resurrected, so that's the day that we honor. But when we look back in the context of the Old Testament, Sabbath was a day of rest to honor God. And the, the, the call to honor God on that day prevented us from working. And so then you got into a big dialogue on what was the meaning of work. Earlier in this, Jesus' disciples were hungry and they plucked heads of grain. The Pharisees were upset because they were harvesting. I mean, you know, we've, we've got some, some harvesters here today. Would you like to go harvesting by plucking it head by head? I think you kind of like sitting in those big combines and just letting it shoot back in the back. But they were accused of working, of this harvesting of the grain. And Jesus responds out of Scripture. But again, we see here Jesus having a problem, and a man comes in with a withered hand. Let me point out some stuff about this particular passage. So there's a lot of irony built into here, and you've probably noticed. So today is the Sabbath. Jesus is at the synagogue. That's where he should be. Basically, Jesus on Sunday went to church. It's a good thing. Pharisees were there because... It was time to go to church, so they, they went to church. There's nothing wrong with that. And then here comes a guy with a withered hand. Why was he there? Because it was the Sabbath. It was the day you go to church, so he went to church. Jesus was there to fulfill something. And he knew that the Pharisees were looking to, to trap him. So on the day that you are to go to church, you are to seek God. You are to seek awe, wonder, holiness, these kind of things. You're not focused on the world at large. You're not focused on the political spectrum of all the differences that divide us as a nation. You are focused on unity. And the unity is the worship of God, our Father in heaven. That was the only purpose of gathering, is so that they could come together as a people to honor the God who had done so much for them in the past. But the Pharisees on that day looked to trap Jesus. They were politically motivated to get rid of him because they had saw the last week they plucked a few heads of grain and that was work. So obviously he's going to do something else. Maybe they even orchestrated for this guy with the withered hand to get a view of Jesus. But this guy, 
He didn't seek something from Jesus that day. He was just there. He was there to worship God, to maybe get understand something more about the, the mystery that God is that day. He wasn't there to be healed. He was there because the Scripture called him to be there. It was there because something in his soul called him to be there. There was a longing that brought him there that day. He didn't even ask Jesus to be healed. The only scene in Mark's gospel where the person who was healed didn't ask for it. He was just there to worship God on the Sabbath in the synagogue as commanded in scriptures. And those Pharisees, those who were so concerned about the legalism of the scriptures and keeping the Sabbath holy, they weren't concerned about keeping the Sabbath holy. They weren't there to worship God. They were there to trap Jesus. Now this is a day when rhetoric is at its finest, this Greco-Roman debate style. We see Paul was gifted in this. He even went to, to Greece and did some of this kind of stuff. You can see in his writings that he is very well versed in this rhetoric of the day. He's winning an argument. And this was a big deal. People would gather and they would have these debates in the synagogues, or maybe not the synagogue, but in different places. And if you silence your opponent... If you brought them to the point where there was nothing else for them to say in their defense or to move the conversation down further, it was an embarrassment for you. You were absolutely defeated in a public manner. You brought shame on yourself for your performance. We don't talk in these terms today. But Jesus had silenced these Pharisees. They couldn't respond. They were silenced. He had won the battle. But during this day, there was exceptions to the rules of the Sabbath. One of them was childbirth. When the baby's time to come, there ain't nothing the mama or the midwife are going to do, then stop it. If it happens to be Sabbath, you're not going to say, hang on, honey, you're going to have to wait another 24 hours to deliver this baby. And so they excuse the midwives, they excuse mothers for working by giving birth on the Sabbath. And there was also uh, uh, provisions that if a person's life was in danger, so he, he got in a fight or something like that, or I, I don't know, whatever it was, tripped on a step coming into church because it was rain, it was, was icy and all this kind of stuff, and banged their head. Well, it's the Sabbath, honey. I'm sorry. You're just going to have to wait till tomorrow before we can stop your bleeding. No, that was an exception. And so here we see Jesus. Now, not every medical procedure was available on the Sabbath. Now, strangely enough, circumcision was. So, so young, young Hebrew boys, guess what? If it was Sabbath, you still got your treatment. Because that was holy. That was sanctified. So the priests doing their duties, they could do it. They could go work. They were employed to do that, but it was holy. Sometimes we justify way too many things as holy to make excuse for it. Well, why do you do that? Well, it's God's work. Could it wait? Well, no, it's God's work. You've got to do it now. Well, how come you didn't do it yesterday? Because yesterday I wasn't doing God's work. But they had all these excuses Elective surgery was definitely off the book. So this man with the withered hand, the withered hand he probably had for a long time, I wasn't going to kill him. 
So the way they interpreted that, if he touched this man, or if he healed him in any way, that he was breaking the rules that they had established for the Sabbath. But if you've suffered for a while from an infirmity, from a disability, from an illness, and it's a chronic condition, it may not bring you death today, but you know one day you'll die. And it will probably be the culprit of your demise. If you are limited on places you could go because you are not considered pure and holy, you couldn't go every place in the temple because of this infirmity, like me pronouncing words. Does one day make a difference? If you could have a day where you were restored, would that make a difference? For this man, for assumingly Jewish man, because they're at the synagogue to worship today, because it was their day to worship. It was their day to go to church. But when he went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, he was uh, forbidden to go to certain areas that were able to other able-bodied Jewish men because they weren't infirmed. Jesus sees him, and he says, come here. And he simply says, stretch out your hand. Jesus restored on the Sabbath. He restored a status to this man. He gave them the rights to what other men had that they may have taken um, for granted. But he returned them to the place where he could be. And we see in this scene that Jesus is challenging the hypocrisy. He's challenging the hypocrisy on both sides. He says, you call this day holy, and you have all these rules to keep it holy, but yet you refuse to do good on a day because you have not justified that as being acceptable on that day. The day is about restoration. Why do you need restoration? Well, God rested, and it restored him. Not really, but that's kind of the, the spin why humans get to do it. And in Egypt, you had been slaved for all these years, maybe 400 years into slavery. You were restored, so remember, there was a time where you did not get rest, take rest. Honor the day and keep it holy. These Pharisees had failed to keep it holy because they looked to trap Jesus. Because Jesus was doing what they saw was wrong. Because their political perspective would not allow Jesus to be the person that he claimed to be. For them, they wanted the Messiah to return. They wanted the Christ to come. And they wanted their kingdom to be restored in the way that they had pictured it. In the way that they saw the glory days of Israel with someone from the line of David sitting on the throne in a majestic area where others could marvel at their kingdom. Well, this one day took place when a descendant from the line of David, this Jesus, who was called the Christ, did come. But he came to restore in a different way. He came to give hope to the hopeless. 
He came to give peace to those whose soul was at war. He came to put life back in the people that were created in his image. It wasn't about a status symbol, but it was about a relationship. It was about a relationship that was fractured because of sin. Because sin has no place in front of a holy God. And those who are guilty of the least of these laws that the Pharisees so eagerly tried to protect were guilty of breaking them all. There was no amount of willpower that could make a person live a perfect life to stand in front of a holy God. Just think about your teenage years when your hormones are changing and all these kind of things. Did you live a perfect life? I wouldn't think so. Think about these days that you're now mature and you got your act together. You're financially comfortable. Your health is probably okay right now. Everything is the way it should be. Do you live a perfect life now? I bet you don't. Jesus knew that. That's why he came to the sick and hurting. So that he may restore them on a day that is holy. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him on how to destroy him. There's this ominous warning at the beginning of Mark's gospel that Jesus' ministry was in trouble in the world's eyes. That they had set a target on him as big as they could make. And they were just going to wait to that time where everything lined up where they could take their shot to get rid of this man who so corrupted the religious system that they had developed. And this very Christ who was promised in these Old Testament prophecies was in their presence and they missed it because their political system was more important than what God was doing in their presence. These are the examples here. The Pharisees and the Rhodians. That would just about be like today saying... You know, a guy wearing a MAGA hat and a uh, Green Deal Party person got together to get rid of this man. They're about as opposite as you could get on the spectrum. But yet, because of who Jesus was, he was going to interrupt both of their systems that had been built. They teamed up to get rid of the only thing that could have saved them. All on a day that was set to be holy. So please join me with the word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for all of those who are able to come today. And I ask that they may be blessed from the songs that we sang and from the words of scripture that you have provided for us. Lord, I pray that if there is someone today that has not taken earnestly their walk with you, that today will be the day that the hypocrisy will be shred, that they will seek you as you are, that they will not just look at you as some kind of therapeutic God that just wants to make them have a happy life, 
but they will be burdened by the sin and the corruption of this world and that they will hear your call and they will act now, immediately, because you have set in front of us each a task to do. Please give us the strength that we may respond to your call. It is in your name we pray. Amen. And now as we enter our time of invitation, if Jesus has burdened your heart and you've been putting him off, if he's been knocking on the door to come in and you've not answered that call, today might be that day that you come forward and that you give your life to Christ so he can be your Lord and Savior from this day forward. And that you will follow him because of the urgency of the message, the urgency of the gospel.